Welcome to Wolves and Wheat Podcast, a podcast about the interconnections between biology and history. I'm one of your co-hosts, William. And I'm the other co-host, Balint. If you're interested in the topics we talk about and want to dive in further, you can find links and show notes on our website, www.wolvesandwheatpodcast.com. Or if you have questions or comments, reach out to us through email at wolvesandwheatpodcast at gmail.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So welcome back to another episode. Today we are going to talk a little bit about paradigms and uh, domestication models, because in order to understand how agriculture originated in the Near East, we first uh, must correct some assumptions and theories that we posed in the second and third episodes. So this episode will focus on older and newer models of domestication and the underlying assumptions of these models. In the second episode, we mentioned that uh, there were three or four major steps turning a hunter-gatherer society to an agricultural society. Uh, but there's, uh, there is a very compelling argument against this process. And in the third episode, we talked about trial and error, pioneer species, and uh, the emergence of domestication syndromes in domesticated plants and the subsequent improvement of these uh, domestication syndrome traits. And some of these ideas uh, might also be incorrect and based on a fluid starting premise. Yeah, and in some of the episodes, uh, we kind of implied the question about trying to figure out if this was really a conscious or an unconscious action by humans. And that was really the topic that we set out to originally answer when we looked at um, the sources for this episode. And we were reading uh, the review paper called Near Eastern Plant Domestication, A History of Thought by Shaha Abo and Avi Grofer. And while we, reading that review, we quickly realized that the ideas that we mentioned in the second and third episodes, they weren't really entirely true. And by scrutinizing the theory as a whole, it showed that the uh, ideas that underlied this whole theory weren't exactly 100% true. And so if, if, the, if the information meant to back up an entire theory and model weren't true, then you have to start looking, about, looking at the efficacy of the theory as a whole. So it shows that some of these ideas that we mentioned tend to not really be all that adequate um, of an explanation when you look at plant domestication and, and the shift from hunter and gathering to agriculture, when you look at it based on different perspectives and from a whole host of scientific disciplines instead of looking at it through just one lens. First, let's examine more in depth the order model uh, and its assumptions, and then we can move on to the newer model. Some of these assumptions that we mentioned, like the multiple steps towards domestication or the role of pioneer species, these are all parts of a larger Near East land domestication model, which this review refers to as the protracted autonomous model. This model is heavily based on the so-called dump heap hypothesis, which is a hypothesis that emerged in the early 1900s. And it states that domestication and plant improvements uh, began to rise due to the discarding of plant material near human dwellings. So humans basically just dumped their garbage into garbage piles, and this created a more fertile uh, soil and a more fertile environment for plants to grow on. And uh, 
Eventually, uh, there were some morphological changes that occurred with or without human involvement. And uh, this was a slow and, from the human side, an unconscious process. Uh, this theory also assumes that there is some trial and error when it comes to selecting plant species for domestication. So there were some failed attempts and uh, some lost lineages of plants that were cultivated but eventually were abandoned as, as a project, so to say. Uh, but there is no adequate evidence uh, to support these claims. Yeah, and even if there was any evidence to support the claims of trial and error, failed attempts at domestication, or lost lineages, it seems very contradictory that they would assume that humans did some experiments with trial and error, but then the whole thing was unconscious and inevitable, because obviously you have to perform conscious actions when auditioning different uh, plants and going through a trial and error phase. Yes, exactly. This ties really well back to what we were talking about in episode 2, that there's ample evidence that hunter-gatherer societies had a deep understanding of their environment and a deep understanding of the traits of edible plant and animal species in their habitat. So it seems very counterintuitive that they relied on trial and error for selecting which plants they wanted to cultivate if they already had a... a wide knowledge and a good understanding of what was available in their area. Yeah, and then another thing that this model um, gets wrong that, that doesn't have a good explanation for is really the, the three or four step to domestication in agriculture from a hunter-gatherer-based hunter society, um, the steps that we laid out um, in um, an earlier episode. And there's a lot of evidence that, that, that suggests that plant domestication can happen in as little as two decades or as many as two centuries. But the protracted autonomous model uh, posits that actual domestication happened over like one or two millennia, a few millennia, with the lower estimates being between one to four millennia and the upper estimate is 12,000 years. And this 12,000 year estimate is based off the fact that they found plant remains and humans, uh, uh, human dwellings that were around 2002. Ah, I'm just going to start this over. Okay. The, another thing that this protracted autonomous model gets wrong is this whole three to four steps um, from a hunter gatherer to an agricultural society and these steps that we laid out in, in one of our previous episodes. But there's evidence that suggests that plant domestication can actually happen in as little as two decades or at most two centuries. But the protracted autonomous model says that actual domestication happened over a few millennia, with the lower estimates being one to four millennia, while the upper estimate is 12,000 years. The 12,000 year estimate comes from the fact that they found plant remains in a dwelling that was dated to 23,000 years before present. And then if it's assumed that that agriculture arose about 10,000 years before present, then that would be about a 12,000 to 13,000 year gap between those two. And this is really in stark contract with the actual experimental data, which suggests that um, domestication can actually happen within a couple generations time. Yeah, so that's another nail in the coffin, so to say. Uh, probably the most forgivable mistake that the old model makes is uh, how to differentiate between traits that were present in the 
progenitor, multi-part progenitors, and traits that emerged after domestication. So before uh, the emergence of modern genetics, it was difficult to uh, elucidate the difference between these. But nowadays, we can tell the difference between pre-existent traits that were already present in the wild populations and traits uh, that only emerged as improvements uh, on, at a later time point during human cultivation. A good example of these traits is that uh, traits that show clear uh, dimorphism between the domesticated types and the wild progenitors, for example, spike brittleness in wild emerald wheat. These are a good example of uh, phenotypes uh, that occurred before domestication and traits that show more like a phenotypic continuum, for example, grain size or threshability between the wild and domesticated gene pool uh, are mostly signs of uh, post-domesticated or post-domestication improvements. Yeah, exactly. So basically, the the uh, ancient humans would see the difference in wild type populations and determine which one that they thought was better. Obviously, uh, the ones with less spike spike brittleness, which made them easier to harvest. And then they began to grow these, and then those traits become fixed and then improved upon over time. And these might seem like minor points when trying to figure out if the path from a hunter-gatherer to society to a more agriculture-based society was conscious or not. But the thing is that all these assumptions that underlie the protracted autonomous model assume unconscious human involvement. And at the best, or... And at the worst, they, they compare plant domestication and the birth of agriculture as a coevolution event, similar to the nitrogen fixation we talked about in the second supplemental episode. So both species underwent genetic changes, although there's no data that humans underwent any kind of genetic changes as a result of, of this shift to agriculture. And at best, they compare it to niche construction, like we talked about in the second episode, when we compared uh, the humans to also termites and beavers who shape the environment around them. And while humans still obviously do engage in niche construction, it's a very conscious decision and conscious actions that they take when they do these things. And another severe flaw with um, this theory is that it's also linked to what is referred to as the geographically dispersed model. And this argues that one species was domesticated at one time in very geographically distinct subcenters. Yeah, so there's uh, multiple things wrong with the underlying assumptions of the old model. Probably the three major ones that are the most flawed are the unique biology of grain legumes compared to cereals, uh, the absence of certain agronomic and dietary considerations, just like uh, well, we mentioned earlier, and also the they assume that there was cultural and genetic isolation in these geographically distinct subcenters where they posit that uh, separate domestication events occurred. But uh, with modern gene flow analysis, uh, this has been proven more or less false. So the assumption that uh, these subcenters were uh, disjointed uh, doesn't hold up. Yeah, exactly. So after all this, so we'll bring you to the, what we think is the better model, the newer model, which is called the core area one event model. 
And we think that it holds up a bit better with the actual uh, data when looked at from multiple disciplines. And it doesn't require nearly as many, if really any, assumptions that the protracted uh, autonomous model relies upon. And one of the first people to assert this hypothesis was Lev Yadun et al. And they were working with DNA markers to try to figure out which wild progenitor species were the closest related to our current crop stock and where exactly they originated. And the work done with these methods led them to first establish what they referred to as the core area hypothesis. And that's that Near East plant domestication originated within a distinct cultural context in a relatively short amount of time in a very well-defined area of modern southeastern Turkey and northern Syria. And it include most, if not all, of the founder crop package species. And the founder crops package species refers to einkorn wheat, emmer wheat, barley, lentil, peas, chickpeas, bitter vetch, and flax. So what happened was this core area hypothesis was still kind of mainly in the rear view, even though other researchers such as Bar Yusuf argued that Near Eastern plant domestication happened within a core area, one area, uh, in the Near East and then diffused outwards. Instead of the protracted autonomous model, which supposes that pressures on the outer bands of human population triggered the events towards agriculture in these different subcenters that domesticated one species separately. So they think that uh, plants were domesticated on the outer fringes of the human populations and then worked their way into the middle. Whereas the new model, like Bar Yusuf said, that all these uh, crops were actually domesticated and agriculture started in one area and then it diffused outwards. But even, even in the face of this evidence, people step, st still kept having updates of the dump heap hypothesis and the protracted autonomous process and just kept using different words to basically say the same thing, even in the face of dissenting opinions. Um, and really the best work and defense of this new position, the core area one event hypothesis, came from Ladozinski, and he initially argued that the old model was very flawed, and he introduced the radical idea of domestication before cultivation, mostly based on the seed dormancy that, uh, that he witnessed in wild lentils, because he did a lot of, of work with both wild and domesticated stock of lentils, and he suggested that in order for lentils to be successfully cultivated, naturally occurring free germ germinated stocks had to exist. So basically what he posited was A, that there's no profitable option for pre-domestication cultivation without these free germinating genotypes. And basically only 10% of wild lentil seeds germinate in, in the uh, dominant populations. And this is due to just uh, resource management because if a larger percentage would, would germinate then it would last fewer generations due to the resources it uh, depleted from the area. So if only 10% of these wild lentils are, are going to germinate, even if you're cultivating them in larger areas, it's not really um, uh, economically feasible to, to, to do that with these legumes. He also uh, noticed that B, the yield of wild lentils is very small. So therefore, unlikely to be a major part of the hunter-gatherer diets. This might one might have been one of the um, least favorite, uh, less favorable food sources that we mentioned that they would go to in, in in times of of pressure when they needed to eat them. And then C, he 
recognized that lentil domestication did not involve any significant advancements in terms of the grade, grain yield of the legumes. And then D, that wild lentils do not have any weedy tendencies and are sensitive to anthropogenic disturbances or the, the um, slash and burn agriculture we mentioned. So legumes weren't really uh, pioneer species by any means and were really sensitive that if the humans burnt an area, it would be a while before they grew back. So what he hypothesized was that the hunter-gatherers would only be attracted to the patches of lentils that had mutant populations that were not limited by the 10% germination rate. And they would gather the crops from these patches, and then those in terms would be the ones that they started to cultivate because they had much higher uh, yields. And as we mentioned in an earlier episode, lentils tend to grow in more discrete patches. So they don't have as much as wide of a range or an area to grow as as grains do. But if you have these populations that aren't beholden to the 10% germination rate and you could grow them in larger patches, then you wouldn't worry about uh, the sustainability of future generations because they're growing in much larger patches. So uh, these findings by Ladizinski, these were pretty groundbreaking because if you think about it, it undermines a lot of the assumptions of the older models in like one one fell swoop, so to say. So uh, it challenges the assumptions, the assumption that how the cultivation of wild plants and morphological uh, domestication occurred. It also challenges how plant candidates were selected and uh, and also uh, how the crop yields of domesticated versus uh, wild progenitors uh, rank up uh, against each other, how, uh, how humans uh, selected their food sources uh, before, during, and after domestication. And it also uh, challenges how the crops that humans domesticated were, tended to be more weedy, so uh, tended to grow in the disturbed areas, which is true for most, uh, which is true for some crops, uh, most of cereals, but it doesn't hold up, as you mentioned, when it comes to legumes. So uh, this difference between cereals and legumes also uh, shows the rationale that underlays the crop package of the Near East, so the crop package that you mentioned earlier, that uh, we need to take into account other factors such as uh, crop yields and other agronomic considerations. And uh, some of these were not really challenged uh, and just uh, were just taken for granted in the older plant domestication models. And uh, they also assume that there was, as we mentioned earlier, there was trial and error uh, with numerous candidates uh, and that in each sub-area, uh, each sub-center, there was a single species domesticated at the time. So it, it also shines a light on the human involvement, on the transition from hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists, since uh, different approaches were needed by Neolithic domesticators based uh, off of their own capabilities, uh, the knowledge of their environment, uh, the exact plant, uh, and the local area. So the model also kind of undermines itself because it assumes that in different areas, uh, humans had to know some stuff about how the how to domesticate plants, but also the whole thing occurred 
kind of on its own. The two models agree on one major thing, which is the why, so the trigger of the event. Uh, so they agree that the environmental and evolution pressures, pressures led humans on the path to agriculture. So what we discussed in the first and second episodes. Uh, so the effects of climate change, mostly the melting of the ice caps, uh, and resource depletion as, as humans, uh, kind, kind of outgrew their original habitats and original food sources. And they had to shift from a more extensive towards a more intensive type of food collection. But what the two models uh, completely disagree on is the how. And as we just explained, the core area one event hypothesis probably makes the most sense uh, when we compare it to uh, the most recent data and analyze it from different angles. Um, so it probably holds up better. Also because it's less parsimonious, meaning that it operates with a few, uh, with fewer assumptions that need to be true for a model to work. Um, and probably the, the one thing that the older model gets the most wrong is the presence of human agency. So, uh, how humans were involved in this process, not just as passive, uh, subjects, but, uh, active uh, but they were actively undertaking these processes. Yeah, exactly. Because the old model, the protracted autonomous model, compares the rise of plant domestication and agriculture as inevitable and with a lack of human intervention. But that completely ignores part of what we talked about in the earlier episode, which is the plants in, that were domesticated in the Near East were perfectly complementary to each other, both in terms of, of dietary uh, necessity and and in terms of um, the the agronomically, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Because the old model compares the rise of plant domestication and agriculture as inevitable and with a lack of human intervention, but that really completely ignores part of what we talked about in the earlier episodes, which is the fact that the plants that were domesticated in the Near East were perfectly complementary to each other, both dietarily and agronomically. Or in other words, they had a, a good balance of, of carbohydrates and proteins and fibers. And also they complemented each other in terms of soil nutrients because of the nitrogen fixation power of legumes. So the, the soil was constantly being repl replenished with nitrogen, which helped all the crops in the area to grow better. So these things weren't done at random at all or as the result of any kind of coincidence. And the first human agriculturists were actually extremely aware of all the relationships of these plants because that's why they deliberately chose these plants to cultivate and domesticate. Yeah, so the, the main question that we ran into as we were collecting uh, the source material for this episode and also a question the, that the authors of the review asked is best summed up with this quote from, from the article, quote, Plant domestication was one of the most successful ingenuities of humankind and still maintains its major economic and cultural role in our modern world. Why is human agency so difficult to acknowledge in this context? We have no answer. End quote. Yeah, they, they say that they have no answer, but I, I kind of like to think that they purposely kind of answer it in a more implicit and subtle way. Because in the very beginning of the review, they mentioned Charles Darwin because he was among one of the first to really start laying the groundwork for what would lead to the dump heap hypothesis and he stated that quote-unquote savages 
harvested nutritious plants, then started to cultivate some of them near their dwellings, then improved varieties emerged from growing in manured areas. He also said, quote, unusually good variety of a native plant might attract the attention of some wise old savage and he would transplant it or sow its seeds, end quote. So while he actually might have been coming close to the actual truth in the second quote, because he said that, you know, they they uh, were attracted to to better growing wild crops than other um, wild populations and then started to sow the seeds. He he followed, he fell into a trap that we still do, obviously, uh, to this day. And we don't necessarily see the human people or the ancient humans, uh, for lack of a better term, like equal in terms of their cognitive ability, problem solving and manipulation of the natural world to us modern humans, humans and not acknowledging um, that our ancestors most likely had the same capabilities as we had just with less technology to do it we kind of limit our own uh, imagination on the subject of of exactly how uh, all of this you know ended up unfolding and this work by by darwin is what and underpins a lot of the older work and later work on the subject that led to the pro to the protracted autonomous model and it was always approached from the point of view that savage people somehow, some way managed to come up with, with agriculture. And it kind of shows that you might be coming close to the truth, but once your own implicit and explicit biases kind of limit your imagination on a subject, it kind of gets in your way of, of being able to see the whole truth and, and piece together the whole picture. Yes, and I think this episode shows uh, really well that we are also not above making mistakes when we make these episodes. So when we gather and interpret sources for our show, we might uh, miss something, overlook something, or misinterpret something. So if you notice uh, a mistake or notice missing information that might be important for the topic of the episode, uh, feel free to reach out to us and correct us, and we will uh, address the the questionable point in in an upcoming episode and uh and make corrections yeah so thank you guys for listening along and i also want to mention that while this model was looked at in terms of near east plant domestication since the old uh protracted autonomous theory and model was used um for all the epicenters of human agriculture the authors of this review suggests that this new core area one event hypothesis can also be used when thinking about the domestication and all the other in shift to agriculture and all the other um, epicenters of, of agriculture. Uh, so while this episode kind of dealt with more like uh, broad view and, and shifting of a paradigm, in the next episode, we'll look at more individual species in terms of how they became candidates for, for selection of cultivation, starting with wheat and barley. So thank you for joining our show again, and we hope you're ready for the next episode. Hey, 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 hey. Wolves and wheat every day.